Injuries, injuries, injuries. I'll talk about that and a whole lot more with Ray and Nick next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 26th. It's show number 16 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday News and Notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries to Fernando Tatis, Harrison Bader, Zach Gallen, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including injuries to Kirby Yates, Jose Leclerc, George Springer, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Kansas City shortstop Bobby Witt Jr. And in the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Oakland right-handed starter Dalton Jeffries. It's another big Friday news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Less than a week away we got to talk some baseball. Opening day coming up next Thursday. Talked about that last week. There's going to be 30 teams in action. All 15 games will be ready to go on Thursday. It's going to be very exciting and great fun. In the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading off, our National League news and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Every fantasy manager, I think, in the world that has Fernando Tatis on a roster was holding their breath earlier this week. The star first-rounder was escorted off the field by the San Diego trainer. He was holding on to his right hip, but the team later called it left shoulder discomfort. What's the latest on the Fernando Tatis horror story for people who have him on rosters? Well, Fernando Tatis returned to the lineup on Thursday night, uh, struck out in his first two at-bats, and then hit a three-run home run. In his uh, his in the sixth inning, so I think Fernando Tatis is fine. Uh, last night's uh, two strikeouts, a walk, and the three-run homer. So Fernando Tatis is back. He played DH initially, and of course he'll have to get back in the field in the National League. But uh, uh, they're expecting that he'll be ready for the start of the season. Massive size of relief all over the place, I imagine. Uh, but you know, Tatis, I don't think his injury risk has been correctly stated. Uh, um, I know. Uh, Ron Chandler's BAB system has put him down as a minor injury risk, but he's had minor shoulder issues all the way back to the minors. And this year, some nagging little ailments. You know, he had a non-COVID illness, took him out for a week. Then he slid really hard headfirst into home into home plate. And uh, that was on a short fly, so he really had to be aggressive. And that cost him a couple of games. I know there's such a thing as injury-prone players. Is it too early to hang that tag on Fernando Tatis and downgrade him for future drafts, especially the ones coming up in this last week before opening day? Yeah, I think at this point you don't want to downgrade him. I, you know, the, the, the problem with Fernando Tatis is he plays full out. I mean, this is a guy who's giving everything he's got on every single play. And when he does that, he certainly opens himself up to injury possibilities. Uh, and describing looking at what happened with the shoulder, uh, that's the same, same kind of thing. He made a backhand, made a backhand play through across his body to try to get the out. And it just, uh, just got a little bit of a, a tweak in the shoulder, um, or in the forearm. So I, you know, I, I think, uh, the way he plays, he's certainly going to get hurt every once in a while and dinged up every once in a while. You just have to hope it's nothing major. Uh, but on the other hand, the way he plays, you want him in your lineup. So I don't think I ding him with an injury tag yet, but we certainly have to watch and see. So far, Baseball HQ hasn't reduced his projections at all. He shapes up as a $40-ish player in 5x5, five five, a little higher in 4x4 four four leagues. Anybody still plays in those uh, single-format leagues, which are a lot of fun. And we should note that the shoulder that was injured is his fielding shoulder, if you want to call it that, not his throwing shoulder, which would have been a much greater concern. Right. Yeah, yeah very definitely. So, And back in the lineup after two nights, so uh, probably just a precautionary removal. And it uh, looks like at this point, like he's ready to go. 
And don't be shocked or upset if you see Fernando Tatis is missing a couple of games here and there between now and opening day because it could be that they're really going to be ultra-cautious as they head towards opening day, wanting him to be 100%. Uh, more bad news for fantasy managers who added St. Louis outfielder Harrison Bader to their rosters. And Nick, uh, so far, Tatis and Bader on my roster. So give me some good news about Harrison Bader. I'll be good. The Harrison Bader news is not good. Out four to six weeks. Uh, because of a forearm injury, start the season on the 10-day injured list. Um, while Bader was penciled in as the Cardinals' starting center fielder, job security was not ironclad even before the injury. He's shown good speed, as many as 15 stolen bases in a season, and good power. Uh, career expected power index of 123, XPX of 147 in 2020. Uh, but Bader has accompanied that with a career average of 234, uh, expected batting average of 225 and steadily declining contact rates. In 2020, his contact rate was only 62%. Uh, absence will open the door for someone not only getting a boost in playing time, but even possibly making a claim on the job. One candidate is Lane Thomas, debuted with a bang in 2019 when he hit 316 with four homers and an expected power index of 114, over 38 at bats. But 2020 was a different story for Thomas. Batted 111 with a single homer over 36 at-bats. Uh, note, however, that Thomas missed almost four weeks with COVID and might not have been 100% when he returned. Another candidate is Justin Williams, who is St. Louis's number 11 prospect with an 8D rating. Williams has only had the six major league at-bats. In the minors, he struggled with contact, and his career OPS of AAA is 756. Williams was just granted another option year, suggesting St. Louis may be planning on giving the 25-year-old some additional seasoning. And the third option is Austin Dean, who struggled over 291 at-bats with the Marlins in 2018-2019. This spring, through games of March 24th, Dean was hitting 281 with a homer in 32 at-bats. So three possibilities as a replacement. Uh, looks like that uh, uh, Lane Thomas is probably the best bet. I think the Lane Thomas and Justin Williams hit opposite hands, so maybe there's a platoon in the future in that outfield spot in St. Louis? Very possible. At this point, we, bu we bumped up uh, Lane Thomas's playing time by 10% and Williams by 15%, so uh, to, to correspond to a 25% loss for Harrison Bader. So it could, could definitely be a platoon possibility. And if it is, you probably want to look at Justin Williams. He'll be on the fat side of the platoon. But, of course, consider all things. Uh, we should mention Phil Hertz covered that story for playing time today. And also in playing time today, uh, Jock Thompson covering the Colorado Rockies Story there about pitcher Kyle Freeland having a shoulder strain. He's going to miss some extended time as well. Kyle Freeland, uh, the uh, uh, left-handed pitcher for the Rockies, uh, exited early on, on Tuesday, March 23rd, later diagnosed with a left shoulder strain. They've yet to announce a timetable for his return, but certainly will start the season probably on the, on the injury list. Uh, no announcement yet as to who will replace Freeland in the Rockies' rotation. Uh, logical choice is recently optioned Ryan Castellini, Newcomer Austin Gomber will also likely absorb some of the innings. Uh, really doesn't matter. Both are really shaky options anyway. And pitching in Coors Field for a bad Rockies club makes them even worse. So I don't think I'd be looking to replace Freeland with either of those people the Rockies are going to use. Staying on the pitcher's mound, Nick, uh, Arizona Diamondbacks right-hander Zach Gallen. He was a second-round, early third-round pitcher in a lot of drafts this year. He was scratched from his spring training start on Monday because of the dreaded right forearm soreness. Uh, Phil Hurts again for playing time today. Forearm soreness is never a good symptom, Nick. What do we know about Zach Gallen's immediate future? Well, you know, in this, in this instance, the forearm soreness turned out to be a hairline stress fracture in his arm that came from swinging a bat. Uh, and it's still not clear how much time he'll miss. Uh, I was reading last night that this is really kind of a very rare injury in baseball. And so it's very unclear how much time it may take for the, for the stress fracture to heal. Uh, right now, we're just making a slight uh, downgrade in his innings, projected innings. But uh, it could be a big blow if, he, if he's out for a, a long time. Over a dozen 2020 starts, Gallon had a breakout season. Compiled a 3.64 expected earned run average, 275 actual earned run average, uh, strikeout minus walk percentage of 20%, BPB of 124. So uh, a lot of people, I think, were counting on Zach Gallon to have a big year this year. And at this point, we just don't know. Could be four weeks, could be six weeks, uh, could be shorter. Uh, just kind of things are up in the air with Zach Gallon at the moment.
Well, I have two quick comments about this, Nick. First of all, Gallon said he first started feeling this discomfort in his arm after he got jammed on a pitch. He was taking batting practice off of a machine uh, back in early March. And my first comment is, why are these guys swinging bats at all at this point? Do, do we not, have we not finally figured this out? And I know that Major League Baseball and the Players Association are kind of using the universal DH as a bargaining chip of some kind. I think it's just stupid to have that be a bargaining chip. It's in everybody's interest that these guys are not swinging bats. Having said that, apparently some of the news coverage I read said he's still able to throw the ball. He just really can't throw it at maximum effort but he's playing catch and they're kind of playing it on a day-by-day basis while they figure things out the diagnosis is confirmed and like you said if anything this might actually be a bit of good news because you hear forearm soreness the first thing that pops into your mind is elbow problems tommy john right absolutely so yeah the the the, uh confirmation that this is a stress fracture a hairline stress fracture uh, it's probably a good thing because we're not thinking about the elbow. But uh, as we said, we just this is a very rare injury in baseball, and we just don't know at this point. Very rare and kind of weird. So, uh, yeah, if anything, I guess we can uh, thank our lucky stars. If you're uh, somebody who has Zach Gallon on a roster, that this could have been a lot worse, I guess, is the best way to put it. Uh, speaking of injuries and elbows and forearms, San Diego Padres right-hander Denelson Lamette threw 29 pitches on Thursday during a two-inning simulated game. Uh, that was last Thursday, March 18th. It's currently not really known what the next step in his rehab process is going to be, but Jock Thompson reports in playing time today, Denelson Lamette is likely to begin the regular season on the injured list. Yes, likely to start the regular season on the injury list, you know, elbow, biceps issues. But uh, the 29, throwing 29 pitches in a simulated game is at least a step in the right direction. Uh, Baseball HQ, we recently dinged his projected innings over concerns about elbow woes, and uh, he has not yet thrown a Cactus League inning at that point. And he remains a significant uh, in-season injury risk. And that's the thing to keep in mind uh, is there, there's a high, highest risk of injury with Lamette. Uh, Adrian Morajan, just four runs and 10 innings pitched this spring. Despite an 11-to-8 uh, strikeout walk ratio, projects to be the number five starter in his place. Uh, McKenzie Gore has also struggled with command and similarly kept the bottom line in check, giving up two runs and six innings pitched with an 8-6 strikeout walk ratio. Uh, both pitches have very huge long-term upside, uh, and both stand to gain right now from any time that uh, Lamette is down. And we should mention that uh, Denelson Lamette did pitch Wednesday night in a spring training game, just 12 pitches, but he, he was getting close to 100 miles an hour off the mound, so that has to be at least something positive to take out of this otherwise negative news. Right, absolutely. So maybe you know, maybe he might just miss a single start. Hard to, hard to know at this point. But I think Baseball HQ analysts are justified in reducing his innings because even if he can start the season on the regular roster, you have to believe that they're going to probably baby him along uh, limited innings, at least in the first few starts. Right, very definitely. Jock Thompson also covers Colorado, and he reports that infielder Brendan Rogers is going to start the season on the IL. He's got a strained right hamstring. It's going to be at least a month with no Colorado Rockies Brendan Rogers in the infield. What do you think? Well, of that? we've heard this one before, haven't we? Brendan Rodgers uh, is certainly an injury risk. Uh, we'd already assumed that he would miss time. We, we baked it into his early projection. The good news for Rodgers' owners is that he had a very good spring: eight for twenty-three, uh, two walks, four strikeouts, two home runs. And the Rockies seem more committed than in previous seasons to giving him an opportunity, and, and that's a good thing. In the meantime, Chris Owens' minor league contract has been purchased, and he's been added to the major league roster, so he gets a slight bump in playing time. Ryan McMahon will slide back over to second base from third. And corner infielder Josh Fuentes, who's 11 for 40 this spring, a home run, uh, one walk, eight strikeouts. We'll get some early opportunities at uh, McMahon's vacated third base position. Neither, uh, neither Owens nor Fuentes seems interesting for too long in anything but the very deepest of formats. Uh, so we, we just hope Brendan Rodgers is uh, back soon. But as we said, at this point, expected to miss at least a month. One of the most interesting columns that you can read at BaseballHQ.com is the regular series called Playing Time Tomorrow, and that's uh, where our analysts take deep dives into the rosters of all the teams in a given division. And uh, Alain DeLeonardis has covered the 
National League East for quite a while, and he had a really interesting update out of Philadelphia as part of his coverage earlier this week. has to do with the bullpen situation, and specifically who's going to close. I picked up Hector Neris in a couple of drafts, and I was pretty sure that he was going to have the job. Mind you, these drafts took place at the start of March, and now I'm not so sure, Nick, what's going on in the Philadelphia bullpen. Well, I'm in a similar situation. I picked up Hector Neris and then dropped Archie Bradley from one league when I was doing cuts, so... Uh... You know, but at this point, Hector Neris started camp with competition for the closer gig. Um, he has the back end of the bullpen picture has changed much of spring training. Eh, it's too close to call at this point. Um, Neris had a bumpy start for spring training, but has since righted the ship. 6.2 in his pitch, three hits, two earned runs, no walks, nine strikeouts. Uh, last year, I had a meltdown, 4.57 ERA, 4.61 XERA, 1.71 whip. And that's the reason he's in a dogfight for the job in the first place. At his previous level, six straight 100-plus BPV innings, Neris is skilled enough to hang on to the job. And now he has to wait for manager Joe Girardi to make a decision. And Girardi said, I've still got to let that play out. That's not been a, a forefront of decisions we have to make, so we haven't spoken about it a lot. And I think his makeup of the rest of the pen could affect how we do something. Okay, so who's in the rest of the pen? The rest of the pen, and what are they uh, going to do? Bradley looked like a favorite to possibly rest the closer mantle from Neris when he signed up. Uh, Bradley's had a very good spring, six innings pitch, six hits, one earned run, two walks, four strikeouts, and he's closed before, 28 saves in his career. But he doesn't quite match up in terms of dominance with the other hopefuls. And uh, while when he's going good, uh, though not in 2020, he had the kind of ground ball rate, 47% career ground ball rate, that's especially useful for getting double plays with runners on. So a stopper's role may ultimately suit him best. Uh, Jose, Jose Alvarado may have been the most helium in the uh, Philadelphia bullpen race, but you don't dare call him a blimp. Uh, in the best shape of his life, stories have become a favorite spring training trope. And in this case, Alvarado lost 50 pounds and justifiably made headlines. He's back to throwing 100 mile per hour gas. The results show six innings pitched, three hits, no runs. One walk, 10 strikeouts. Alvarado has had previous closing experience with Tampa, uh, but not quite as extensive as Neris with Philadelphia. So there's a lot of excitement surrounding Alvarado, and if his newfound physique can lead him to regain the skills he had a couple of years ago when he had a 125 BPV, he should be capable of holding on to the Crows' role if he's given the chance. And one more piece of the puzzle. Usually right-handed pitchers are more likely to close out games than lefties, but Philadelphia has two additional lefties, Tony Watson, and uh, Jojo Romero, that could make the team. Girardi's decisional factor in his other left-handed options. Romero's been solid, six innings pitch, six hits, one earned run, three walks, six strikeouts. Watson has been less solid, 4.2 innings pitched, seven hits, four earned runs, two walks, seven strikeouts. So still a decision to come on who the Phillies' closer is going to be. I checked the uh, Baseball HQ depth charts for Philadelphia and right now we actually have Archie Bradley as the leading candidate just over half the saves Neris with 40 percent Alvarado with only five and a dark horse Brandon Kinsler who has some closing experience back in the day in Miami so there's certainly plenty of options there for anybody who's feeling like tossing some coins the thing about Archie Bradley though that you mentioned Nick that uh, really piqued my interest is he's always been a fairly low strikeout guy and a lot of managers prefer a higher strikeout guy in that closer role because you don't want to get anybody on base. You want to try to get those whiffs. And Archie Bradley's ground ball tilt, as you mentioned, very helpful to get double plays. And maybe that's the kind of guy you want to bring in in the late innings when there's somebody in position to be doubled up. Right. Maybe that sort of thing. He may be, you may find that uh, Bradley getting saved for those situations where there's somebody on base. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a nice, a nice situation for a manager to have. Let's say Neris comes in and gets a bit wild and walks somebody, do you then bring in Bradley to get the double play? Certainly possible. Staying in playing time tomorrow, Dan Marcus is the analyst in the National League Central, and in his coverage this week in the column, he talks about the St. Louis Cardinals and the possibility that they might be hearkening back to the Whitey Herzog days and run, run, run. Certainly possible. 2019 Cardinals were one of the most aggressive teams on the base paths attempting 0.88 steals per game, and that was good for the fourth-highest average in the league. But last year, 2020, their attitude seemingly changed quite a bit. Uh, the team averaged only, only uh, half steal per game, 22nd-highest in the league. Uh, in off-season comments, uh, the manager, Mike Schilt, 
stated that playing through the pandemic impacted the team's base running the most of all the areas of the game. Logically, this makes sense, given that the Cardinals were among the hardest-hit teams by the pandemic, affecting both their depth and their schedule. And with fatigue and a lessened desire to take injury risks, it's natural to expect the team would cut back on aggressive base running. And as a result, since departing, Colton Wong led the team with five successful stolen bases in 2020. Only three other players, Harrison Bader, Tyler O'Neill, and Tommy Edmond, swiped multiple bags. While that number will certainly grow regardless of team philosophy based on volume of games alone, just how Shilton envisions utilizing his players on the base paths will go a long way, dictating their fantasy returns. Well, Nick, if spring training is any indication, uh, the team looks like it's going to play it conservative once again. They're not running. Overall, St. Louis has attempted only seven stolen bases, with Edmund O'Neill and Bader being the only projected regulars to be on the move. However, that may not prove to be predictive of how the team behaves in the regular season. In a recently published article in St. Louis Dispatch by Derek Gold, Schultz was quoted as saying the team was playing coy with their running plans this spring. Assuming the team does, in fact, get more aggressive, uh, Edmund, who has a 129 career speed and a 95th percentile sprint speed, Dylan Carlson, uh, 108 projected speed, 74th percentile sprint speed, and Bader, 150 projected speed, 98th percentile sprint speed, all have well above average speed and potential to top 20 stolen bases going into the year. And coincidentally, in Facts and Flukes, the performance validation coverage, Brant Chasser was looking at some National Leaguers, and he touched on Tommy Edmond as well. And the headline says, Edmond should find more stolen bases in 2021. In 2019, Edmond hit uh, 304, 11 homers, 36 RBIs, 59 runs, and 15 swipes, uh, and appeared to offer a very solid power-speed combination. But both power and speed decreased in 2020. He had only 250 with five homers, 26 RBIs, 29 runs, and two swipes. And while his 2019 power may not repeat, the stolen bases look uh, more promising. Uh, here are the things we, what we look at when you look at trying to find more stolen bases for Tommy Edmund. According to StatCast, sprint speed 95th percentile. We already mentioned that. Uh, above average speed supports stolen base chances. Although he stole only two bases in six attempts in 2020, his career stolen base percentage is 77%. So that backs a more successful rate. And with above average speed, expect to return then to double-digit stolen bases, assuming the Cardinals are running as we, we kind of think they might. Uh, even his contact rate dipped in 2020. Contact rate history supports some contact rate improvement in 2021 with an above-average line drive rate, a 33% career hit rate, and an above-average uh, hard contact index. His power can finish near his projected 267 batting average. So BA may go up just a little bit from where it was a year ago. 4% barrel rate finished in the 15th percentile for Major League Baseball in 2020. And below average expected power index doesn't provide any support. He averaged 300 feet for his fly ball distance in 2020, 99 career expected power index, 31% career fly ball rate, 12% career home run per fly. What that supports is a low double-digit home run total but uh, not back to the 2020 level. And with a below average walk rate, his on-base percentage may lag again in 2021. Uh, speed can help, or Pete of his 317 on-base percentage appears more likely than getting back up to 350, which he had in 2019. So, if you're looking for stolen bases after pick 100, you may want to roster Edmund Speed. Above average sprint speed, career stolen base percentage, back chances, and a stolen base total in the mid-teens for 2021, and that's what we're projecting but not a one-category player either. Above-average career contact rate and line drive rate say he can provide an above-average BA. And while his BA could help, his low walk rate may keep his on-base percentage close to league average. Without many barrels, his lower fly ball rate, average fly ball distance, and career home run per fly point to a home run finish nearest 12 projected home runs with a chance to contribute in all five categories, multi-eligible position status, and a chance for a high teens uh, Rotor dollars could provide some flexibility for a roster. Baseball HQ is projecting 544 at-bats, $18 season, 12 homers, and 17 stolen bases. Now, a caution here, if you happen to be playing in an on-base percentage league, as weird as it sounds, this is going to be one of those situations, kind of like Adalberto Mondesi in the American League, where you might get a lot of steals, but it'll come at the expense of a horrendous on-base percentage. We're projecting barely over 300 for Tommy Edmund. Right, so yeah, keep that in mind. If you're on an, on-base, an OBP league, uh, Edmund may have less value than he would in a batting average league. 
Batting average, they're projecting mid-260s. That's not great, but it's certainly not uh, totally harmful in this environment. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. I guess the next time we talk, the season will be underway. We'll be, we'll be off and rolling. Harold Nichols is a Baseball HQ pitching analyst and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and co-GM and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. We're running out of Thursdays before opening day here. This is great. Opening day, uh, what, eight days away now or something like that? Maybe a week away, actually, isn't it? They are opening on Thursday this year? Yeah, who's counting? But we're getting there. Well, I think we'll be, uh, we won't quite be watching real games when we talk next week, but we're going to be pretty close. That's right. And, of course, you and uh, Todd Zola will be doing the big uh, preseason roundtable next week as well, so that'll all be uh, very fun and interesting. Uh, let's start I hope with they some... stop the news long enough for us to be able to do that. It's going a little too fast here. No kidding, right? Especially the last few days have been really something, especially with closers. Now let's start in Toronto. Uh, they spent a, a goodly sum to get Kirby Yates onto the roster, and Kirby Yates is now off the roster. He'll be on the DL or IL for the whole year because he's going to go get some Tommy John. Yeah, I don't say this to criticize the Blue Jays, but if you keep spending five five and a half million dollars at a clip on guys who blow out their elbows in March, you're going to run out of money sooner or later. And they're certainly not spending it on broadcasting. Uh, I don't know if it made the news down in the states, but uh, the the Blue Jays have really cut back on their broadcasting. They're not broadcasting any of the spring training games. Some of the uh, local cable systems pick up the visiting video feed and and the commentary, which has a lot of Jays fans upset because they want to. The New York Yankees broadcast team is not that interested in roster implications on Toronto. They talk about the Yankees, naturally enough. And then when the regular season starts, get this, they're going to simulcast the TV on the radio. So the uh, the broadcast team on TV, which is Dan Schulman and Buck Martinez, Dan Schulman's a terrific announcer, but it seems like a bit weird that you'd want to have a guy doing TV and talking about replays and all that kind of stuff, and then just take that audio and uh, on it goes onto the radio, and they let, let all the radio guys go. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, will you look at that? Freeze that f- shot right there. You can see that his foot's not quite on the base yet, and all the radio people are like, what? <laughs> To be fair, sometimes they do that anyway because they everybody knows they have the replay in the booth. The radio announcers will sometimes say, yeah, we're looking at it now, and by gosh, I think he was safe, which is fine. But uh, And Dan Schulman's a terrific, very professional announcer, as you know. Uh, spent a long time at ESPN uh, doing their premium, like, quality games on Sunday nights and Monday nights and stuff. And So I don't worry that he's going to not be able to handle it. It's just uh, the Jays are going cheap every which way, except for this closer situation with Kirby Yates, where, by the way, they got him by outbidding a team that knew about his physical history and declined to uh, raise their bid. Should have been a red flag. It sounds like the flags here were at least orange. That's right. Perhaps even, you know, we, we knew he was coming off injury, but I, I think the, uh, you know, what's come out this week about the Braves passing on him and then the Jays, I, it's, I, if I read correctly, I think they actually offered $8 million first and then cut their offer once they reviewed the medicals. So they, uh, you know, it seems like people who had the best information were quite concerned about this outcome. But, you know, now we're left to talk about, where the Jays turn from here, it's not a bad bullpen, but everyone's sort of going to move up a rung on the ladder, which uh, which is going to stretch it a little thin, I think. According to Phil Hertz, who covered this story uh, for playing time today, the leading contenders are Jordan Romano and Rafael Dolis. Uh, what do we think of those two candidates? Romano was a, a revelation last year in, in short sample before he actually got hurt and missed the last month or so of the, well, you know, two month season, uh, you know, he was flashing closer worthy skills and by all means looked like the closer of the future there. So he, he probably steps into the role uh, that seems to be every indication that that's the way they're going to go. But you know, don't lose sight of Delise here either. Delise uh, due to attrition when Romano, Anthony Bass, Ken Giles all got hurt last year. He actually ended the year with the role, which uh, we should not lose sight of. And, with Romano having uh, a somewhat checkered injury history and some workload concerns there, Dolis could get anything from you know the third day in a row save when Romano's not available. Maybe even, uh, I read a couple places today, they might shy away from using Romano on back-to-backs for a while. So that could make it somewhat of a job share. And then, like everybody else, they at least make noise about wanting to use Romano in the highest leverage situation possible if the middle of the order is coming up in the seventh or the eighth inning. Uh, 
everybody's talking about that. We'll see in a couple of weeks who's actually doing it, but it's going to be some combination of Romano in the lead and Delise behind them. Right now, we've actually got it at close to a split. It's uh, 55% of the saves to Romano, 25% for Delise, and then there's a smattering around the rest of the pen. Another closer situation that has changed uh, in Texas, Jose Leclerc, who a lot of people thought there was something wrong there. He's out uh, probably again for the rest of the year. And we have a kind of a mixed bag of uh, retreads in Texas battling for the role. Yeah, we spent some time going through these guys a week or two ago when Jonathan Hernandez went down and we were trying to read the tea leaves about who might be next in line behind Leclerc and now Leclerc has gone and vacated the chair, so that's no longer an academic discussion, right? But it's the same names that we were talking about last week. It's Ian Kennedy, definition of a retread, Matt Bush, who's had as odd and twisted a career path as anybody in there. You know, they're, they're probably the two leading contenders now, and they're 35 and 36, I think. So certainly no long-term answers there for the, uh, the, the, the future of the franchise. But one of them is likely going to be the opening day closer, and then maybe it becomes a race between Jonathan Hernandez, whose injury we talked about previously, and Joey Rodriguez and Demarcus Evans to see who can get back first, because I think all three of those are better pitchers and certainly better long-term candidates in the role for Texas, but all are nursing various injuries right now, and we'll see how Kennedy and or Bush hold up in the role and which one of those guys come back to push them. I had Ian Kennedy on my roster a couple of years ago. Uh, gosh, he was terrific. And I think Ian Kennedy is one of those guys, and I think Matt Bush is one of those guys, that if either of them gets a full-time role, it'll be because they ran with it when they had it uh, in the part-time situation. I wouldn't be surprised if one of these guys ends up with quite a lot of saves. And I think it's going to be Kennedy of the two. That's probably right. You know, it, they certainly, you know, retread status and age outside of the discussion, they both have flashed in the recent past certainly skills that are plenty worthy of holding down the role. Uh, it's been a bit a little bit longer for Bush because he's been injured so often. He has only, you know, he threw, he hasn't pitched since 2018 and even now was only 20 something innings, 2017, but before that was his last full season. But he had 10 saves that year and, you know, he had a couple of years of triple digit PPVs before that. And, you know, same with Kennedy. There's a long and winding road there. He had 30 saves for Kansas City as recently as 2019 and has shown some effectiveness in the bullpen, you know, fairly recently, he kind of got deposed from the role in summer camp last year, as Mike Matheny wanted to go to more of a matchup bullpen, you know, but it happened before he really did anything to lose the job after that 30 save season is what I'm saying. So it wouldn't be the craziest outcome, as you say, for one of those guys to come in and maybe not have an iron grip on the ninth thing, but be plenty competent in the role. Well, Rod Trusdell's analysis of playing time today said uh, he thinks Kennedy, who has that closing experience that you mentioned in Kansas City, he thinks Kennedy's going to get the first chance. He's going to get the ball with the first save opportunity that they have. But he also points out that Bush has really been dealing in spring training. Yeah, he's been uh, four innings and six, uh, with no runs and six strikeouts. And you know the, the question, you know, there's there are no questions about his stuff. It's upper nineties fastball has always been a, a you know, just a tantalizing classic reliever mix. And the question is going to be, you know, he's healthy now, but where's the next injury and how long can he stay on the mound? I, I would agree with Rod that Kennedy's probably getting the ball first. I've, I've also read some speculation in other sources that uh, one of the reasons that Kennedy signed with uh, the Rangers was because of a you know existing relationship with Chris Young, who's now the general manager. And I think those guys are roughly the same age, which is another discussion. <laughs> uh, but but you know, that but the, that uh, you know the, that relationship and you know not not that promises were necessarily made, but that uh, Young might turn to Kennedy first uh, due to uh, due to due to some personal reasons there. The final closer situation that we should talk about is the kind of the weirdest. Everybody figured that Cleveland would be going with James Karinchak and the 191 mile an hour fastball and kind of a, a bit of wildness. But uh, lo and behold, here comes Terry Francona, the manager, and he says, I like the cut of this Nick Whitgren's jib, and I think maybe he's going to find his way into the mix. Uh, how much 
stock should we put in these kind of stories when a manager just says right out of sort of left field, hey, look at that guy. I like that guy. Yeah, it's one of these things that I feel like there's one of these or two of these every spring where, you know, going back into the winter when drafts start, we always, you know, everybody thinks they know who the closer is, but despite repeated opportunities to do so, the manager never actually confirms that. And people don't listen to that, to what was actually coming out of the manager's mouth because the skills or the assumption or whatever is pretty well baked in. But this to me is a case where we need to at least start paying a little bit of attention to what Francona is saying, uh, because, you know, Francona is a pretty modern guy when it comes to bullpen management. And he said he sees Karinczak as a fireman or a stopper or the, the, the key guy to get out of a jam sort of thing. And, where is he going to turn if that's the case? Well, we might have thought that plan B was Emmanuel Kloss, but he's got virtually no major league experience and is an unknown to Francona because after they traded for him last year, remember, he got suspended. So he may, Kloss may need some time to sort of work his way into that mix and, and sort of stake a claim. So if you cross off those two guys, the one who's left is Wickren who, to be fair, is you know sticking a claim to the job in spring training with six and a third scoreless innings, no one walk, seven strikeouts. So if Francona is basing it on what's what his eyes are seeing right in front of him, which may or may not be the best way of making these decisions, but if we put ourselves in Francona's chair for a minute, he sees Wickren sticking a claim, and if he has a predilection for a bullpen that does not have Karinczak at the back end of it, this might be where he's going to turn. So... Watch it, you know. I, I, it's you know we're not making a full change to the saves allocations yet, but this might be a case where you know Karinchik's very early ADP is a little optimistic right now. Karinchak and Class A definitely have the stuff, but neither of them has that much experience. I think Karinchak has one big league save, maybe a twenty or so in the minor leagues, and Class A about the same. Meanwhile, Whitgren has not that many saves either, but he has been a really decent setup man for Cleveland the last couple of years, as you mentioned. And I'm really curious about something you said about Francona and his willingness to manage his bullpen in a modern sort of fashion. Uh, This will be something of a change for him. We think of Brad Hand, 16 out of 16 for last year, 36 saves in 2019. Chris Perez, remember going back a ways, had 25 saves. Cody Allen had 24, 34, 30, and 27. I would be really curious to see if if, uh, Francona is is willing to manage in the modern way, which we take to mean mix and match, but maybe managing in the modern way means – I understand this guy doesn't have the strikeouts of the other two options, but he's got something about him that makes me confident, and I'm going to roll with the guy that I trust. Yeah, I think that's very much it. And when I say he's a modern manager, you're right. He's stuck. He's mostly stuck with a closer once he gets comfortable with them in the regular season. But he's he's one of those guys who manages totally differently in the playoffs, which you know we're talking about who's going to be the closer in April, in April, not October. But it, it at least shows a. Uh, a, a willingness to get into that mix and match hot hand matchup mode if he needs to. And if it, if the reason he needs to is not because it's a playoff, you know, you're fighting for your life situation, but a, I don't really know who I can trust in this bullpen yet situation. We know he's got the, you know, the, um, the history of going that way. If he, you know, if he feels the need, this would be for a different reason. But to your point, the one guy who he's been watching for a couple of years now here is Whitgren, and Whitgren had two very good years at Cleveland in 2019 and 2020. So even if Frank Cohn is thinking of it as I'm going to stick Whitgren in there for a while until I get comfortable with Karinczyk and Class A and how I want to use them and what they show me, then you know the Whitgren may get X number of weeks of saves until there's a reason for him to make a change. And if he succeeds, there's no reason for Francona to change. And I think the track record suggests that he probably wouldn't. Uh, you're right about the playoffs. Of course, we all remember uh, 2016. He used Miller, Shaw, and, and Cody Allen all kinds of ways and what was considered very innovative at the time. And they got within a, a couple of outs of winning the World Series. So uh, 
I think you're right that the uh, playoffs are a different animal where Terry Francona is concerned, and it is a different animal because of the limited length of time that you have to pull your strings. You got to pull what strings you got. Uh, let's move on to uh, uh, position players in Toronto. The outfielder George Springer, speaking of guys they spent a lot of money on in the off season, has been diagnosed with a grade two strain to his left oblique, according to the club. Uh, what have the Jays said about the prognosis here? There's a bit of a disconnect here that Matt Cederholm flagged in the uh, in his injury column, the Big Hurt this week. Uh, the, this injury actually missed his deadline, but uh, Matt was diligent and actually chimed in in the comments of the article. Uh, you know, the early guidance from the Jays was that you know, they, they were optimistic that Springer would still be ready for opening day, uh, but but Matt correctly pointed out that ready for opening day, which as we said at the top of the show, is you know, just over a week from now versus grade two strain don't mesh at all. And if it really is a grade two strain, which is, you know, a middle tier severity, not just a minor thing, Matt sees that as a three or four week injury. So if it, you know, it's either a grade two, in which case he's not going to be ready for opening day, or it's not a grade two if he's ready for opening day. So the, you know, if the diagnosis is right, then the, uh, the, the timetable is not. And of course, I talked with Matt Cederholm uh, last week on the Baseball HQ Spotlight, and we were talking about injuries and those kinds of things, and, and obliques was a subject that came up. And they're a really tough injury. I think we've all learned that by now, but because there's so much rotational and torsional movement in all baseball activities, hitting and throwing in the case of an outfielder, this is not something to be taken lightly. And if I were anybody who has uh, George Springer on a roster, I would start thinking about making some backup plans because you say uh, three to four weeks minimum is what Matt's saying uh, for this injury now. And three to four weeks has a nasty way with obliques of turning into six to eight weeks or longer. That's right. And and you, furthermore, the Jays have every reason to be cautious with their new prized investment. And as long as the rest of the team is healthy, they also have you know fairly good coverage for this. It would just be Randall Grichuk falling back into center field. Remember when they signed Springer, there was this domino effect of where was Grichuk going to go? Where was Rowdy Telez going to go? Was Vlad going back to third? Oh my goodness. What about Calvin Biggio? You know, there's the, the way those dominoes fall, but as long as all those other guys are healthy, you know, they arguably don't miss Springer as much for the three or four weeks and might as well get their $150 million guy ready for the next 22 after that. So there's certainly no reason to push him. And the Jays were planning on using Springer at the top of the order while he's out. It looks like the best on-base guy that they can have in that role is Kevin Biggio, who seemed to be ticketed for a six or seven slot in the revamped Blue Jays order. So if you have a shot at Kevin Biggio in your drafts, maybe you want to give him a slight uptick in value for that reason. Yeah, that's right. You know, Grichik may directly inherit the playing time, but in terms of... Uh, in terms of value, it might be it very, the impact might very well be bigger on Biggio to get him more bats at the top of the lineup, maybe more opportunities to run, and honestly, a chance to you know stick a claim to st- getting out of that sixth or seventh hole for the whole season if he gets off to a hot start. That's right, and in the meantime, also stake a claim to some kind of position on the field because there was all kinds of uh, speculation going on that they were going to move him around, and as a result, he was going to go from you know 650 plate appearances to 450 because he was kind of the odd man out, especially with this huge outfield glut, and there was no room for him to go out and you know hang around in center field a little bit uh, as he might have been considered for in a utility type role. Maybe he'll actually have a role. I should mention that. The other night, uh, Vlad Guerrero played third for the whole game against the Yankees. So um, factor that into your considerations. Maybe they're now thinking Telez and, and Vlad and Kevin Biggio still on the outside looking in. So uh, don't be so sure about Kevin Biggio, I guess is what I'm saying, right after saying this is a great news for Kevin Biggio. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's going to be a meritocracy, right? That's what happens when you know you have these sort of team pretzel looks with – 10 or 11 guys for nine spots. It's going to, you know, every one of them is going to have to you know, go out and sort of stake their claim to their position on the field or their lineup position. And anybody, you know, you worry about anybody going one for 16 to start the season and what that means. A couple of highly touted and highly drafted prospects were sent down. It was really surprising to see Minnesota send down outfielder Alex Kirilov. What happened there, Ray? And uh, according to Rick Green, who covered the story for playing time today, who benefits? Well, what, well, I guess what happened was the door was, pick your adjective, it was cracked or ajar or open for Kirilov to some degree to take that 
left field job with you know, Eddie Rosario gone to Cleveland, but Kirilov didn't open the door or kick it down or whatever it was he had to do. He only hit 129 with this spring with one home run and a, a walk and eight strikeouts and really you know made it easy for the Twins to say, go to the alternate site, maybe hang around until AAA opens up. We'll get you some reps there and we'll see you sometime this summer. So you know, opportunity missed is probably the best way to put it. And what that means is they're probably going to run with a platoon for a little t- a little bit of time here until Kirilov makes the case to come back. Likely Jake Caven, Kyle Garlick, probably the couple of guys who are going to work out in left field in the meantime here. Caven has been you know pretty decent at times. He's a career 265 hitter with a little pop against righties. You know, he'll hold his own there. Uh, Garlic just came, came in off of waivers and, you know, is a similar, it makes a nice platoon partner for him. And then Garlic uh, tends to hit the southpaws harder. So you can see the natural platoon here of your squint. And Brent Rooker is probably also kicking around here. And, you know, don't forget Luis Arias, uh, you know, is sort of moving into the super utility role that Marwin Gonzalez used to have here. So, you know, there are a bunch of options. You know, Rick was, uh, Rick Green, as you mentioned, covered this, and he was super diligent, even suggesting that, you know, this could even get down to some appearances for Williams Astadio in the outfield, which, quite frankly, my only reaction was, I can't wait to see that. (laughs) (laughs) But there are, you know, he's probably fifth on the left field depth chart right now. So maybe, maybe, maybe only in an emergency. And let me just thank you for not saying that garlic was going to make a nice addition to the sauce. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It always does, my friend. In Kansas City, Ray, the Royals sent superstar-in-waiting Bobby Witt to the minors, disappointing a lot of people who spent a pick or a few bucks on him, including me. A late pick, not a disaster. But we talked about this last week, so we don't have to go into it in depth. But how disappointed should we be that Bobby Witt was sent down, and how optimistic should we be that this is a playing-time shenanigan and maybe he's back sooner than later? I think there's some optimism that he could be back sooner than later. He probably, much like anybody else in this situation, despite all the buzz from the uh, you know the, the Royals about being open to him sticking, this was probably the you know the, the expected outcome. And what happens next probably depends on Witt as much as anybody. If he goes to, I don't even know whether they'll sign him since he's only played in rookie ball. But assuming they drop him into Double A and he has a good month there, he could easily be back by June. So we'll have to have to wait and see and. You know, to use the metaphor I was using earlier, we'll wait and see when Witt kicks the door down or at least makes it hard for the Royals to justify keeping him in the minors. Staying in Kansas City, uh, starting pitcher Chris Bubich was sent down uh, late last week. And at first, I guess people thought he might have a shot at the starting rotation, not so much even as a fifth starter. So what happens now? Yeah, so it's interesting there they're going to send him out. And the guy who seems to benefit is uh, Jake Junis, who has been in their rotation for the last couple of years, but it seemingly pitched his way out of the rotation on the preseason depth charts and seemed like he was going to be moved into a long release relief role. But then, you know, if you remember his story, he's always had a really good slider and not much else in terms of, effective pitches his fastball wasn't very good and he never really had an effective third pitch so he would get decent strikeout numbers from the slider but he would also get hit pretty hit pretty hard pretty regularly when batters were able to tee up the fastball or lay off the slider etc but he's actually changed his pitch mix this year and he's finally found a cutter to go with the slider as sort of the second effective pitch you know the sample size is tiny but it's five innings of spring ball two hits a run no walks and seven strikeouts that's apparently enough for the Royals to say, hey, you know, we said we wanted you to pitch a long relief. Yeah, that kind of looks pretty good. How about we put you back in the rotation? He had a pretty decent year in 2018, Ray, despite some, you know, not great skills. Uh, he had a base performance value of 111, which is uh, slightly above average, but it Overall, it wasn't that impressive. I like the 10, 10% swinging strike rate and 63 first pitch strike. And that all led to, uh, we used to call it to dominance rate, uh, 8.3 strikeouts per nine innings. Doesn't seem that great given the amount of uh, swinging strikes and stuff. But he earned five bucks. And, and the way he did that was by getting a lot of wins for a bad team. He had 30 starts in 2018. He got nine wins out of the deal, which is, I don't know how that compares with Kansas City's overall winning percentage, but uh, 2018 wasn't a banner year. 
here or there. More recently, he's been like a $0 type pitcher. How optimistic would you be that adding the third pitch and changing that pitch mix is going to vault uh, Jacob Junis out of that just a guy kind of situation into something that might be worth looking at? I mean, there are a couple of things working in his favor. I mean, this team this team seems like it's a little better. He's got a good bullpen behind him. The, the team context isn't terrible. And he's shown that he's somewhat durable, which you know, we always always talk about hunting for innings this year and how hard that's going to be. And he looks like he's pretty interesting in that regard. You know, he's mostly stayed off the DL in his career. He had COVID last year. We're not going to hold that against him. But other than that, he's been on the DL once for his back. And he threw 177 and 175 innings in 18 and 19 before that. So, I mean, that's he's, he's 28 years old. I mean, it's a decent volume play if he's, to your point, if he's even decent and shows above average skills, which he, to your point, he's already done in the recent past. So if the new pitch makes him even a little better than that, then, you know, that $5 season from 2018, 2019 could move up to the eight, $9 range. I'd throw a buck or two at him in an auction this weekend. We mentioned Matt Cederholm and his big hurt column, which is one of the prize things that everybody should be reading as far as uh, keeping track of what's going on in fantasy baseball because uh, injuries play such a huge part and it seems to be growing every year. But Matt also uh, writes the Market Pulse column in the preseason and looks at the uh, various positions first. And just the other day, he put out his all-value team, and there's a few interesting American League guys on that list. Yeah, that was the all value team is certainly uh, sort of one of the capstones of our off season coverage. We you know ran it last Friday on the site, and uh, you know which was really the day when we try to have all of our draft prep content up for the preseason, and then we spend these last couple of weeks before opening day just sort of tweaking and refining. But that would that was the uh, conclusion of you know a, really a. 10-part series that Matt went through going back to late January with position-by-position position comparisons between the HQ projections and what the ADPs say and where the we are, where the targets and avoids are based on that. So, you know, in the American League, there are a couple of guys that, you know, we've talked about on the show here a couple of times already this spring. Uh, you know, Eddie, Eddie Rosario was a guy we talked about in the context of TGFBI, right? And it certainly seemed like all of the HQers drafting there were – dialed into this disparity between our projection and the market because I think I was one of the only HQers to not get Rosario in my TGFBI draft and I know you told the story about how you got him a little earlier than you even wanted to. And finally Ray let's talk about Ed Dicaria's research piece at baseballhq.com. It's a uh, it's extremely interesting, it's extremely timely and it's titled Breaking Free from ADPs. Give us the lowdown on what Ed covered in this very interesting research article. So yeah, Ed did a fantastic job on this article and the comments really highlighted, you know, people were commenting things like article of the year and oh man, and you know, I got to go reread this and stuff like that, which were always gratifying to read. And the, the thing I took away from this was that it's, it's not complicated math he did. He used a lot of basic mathematical principles on data in a way that you didn't necessarily think you could. You know, we look at the data we get from the National Fantasy Baseball Championships ADPs, and they give us, you know, the earliest pick, the latest pick, and the average pick from all ADP, from all drafts, right? They give us that for every player. But Ed really did, uh, you know, really the dirty work to what he did. The headline of what he did was he collected that data individually for every day this preseason for the 15-team drafts of the NFBC. What that did was that got him a lot of smaller data sets, you know, with two, three, four drafts a day. And when you have that minimal information, the min, the max, and the average, you can often discern the exact picks or at least interpolate what the range of the picks in every single draft. So it built a massive data set of basically wherever the exact pick where everybody was, every player was picked in every draft. And then he just added more basic statistical data to it. He said, all right, we've got the ADP. So Let's, let's derive the median. Let's de derive the mode, which is the pick where the pick the, the player is picked most often. Let's do the 90th percentile pick across however many hundred drafts that were the 75th percentile, the 50th percentile. It broke all that number out for every player, which really gives you a better 
sense, especially in the first five, 10 rounds of the draft of where you need to pick a player to get him where, you know, with more detail behind it than just what his average draft position one number says he is. So really fascinating tool and really worth looking at it in terms of where your draft, who, if you already know who your draft targets are, it gives you much more information to work with about where you think you need to pick them in order to get them. Another aspect of the research that I found really interesting, especially in light of what Ariel Cohen's been doing with his added uh, focus on how much variation there is between ver- between uh, uh, projection systems and, and those kinds of things. This is a, a very similar sort of thing. Uh, Ed calls it draft position variation, and uh, there's a couple of angles to it, which is first, how much variation is there for each individual player? And second, who are the outliers? And this was really interesting. He calls it Kurtos. It's a math term that describes players who have a tendency to go very much earlier or very much later than the mode. I mean, than the median uh, where the where their ADP falls. I think this is very valuable information because, as you said, when it comes time to target players, sometimes what you want to know is what's really the earliest or latest that this might happen, which can color your view of of whether you can rely on the median or average or whether you need to be a little more discerning that's right you know with the classic thing we say all season is if you all off season is if you really want this guy you know jump him up around right but i think what ed is trying to capture there is you know who, who are the guys who if you want them you have to jump around who are the guys if you want them you better jump them two or three and then he also takes that sort of same concept of uh you know the draft position variance and he also puts some recent data on it where he puts a little more weight on the drafts in the last uh, seven days or whatever it is. And, you know, it start, points to what the trend line is. So getting back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, he, he actually just gave me an update to this info today, which I'm putting on the website uh, for, for people drafting this weekend. And like Ian Kennedy's, you know, is breaking in a very positive ADP direction, as you would expect, based on the news we were talking about earlier. So, you know, it, it's a handy tool for saying, well, I know Kennedy's ADP from the offseason is not accurate anymore, but rather than just it not being accurate and you saying, well, I guess I have, to, I have to disregard the ADP and just guess where I have to take Kennedy. Ed's actually putting some math on that and saying where Kennedy's fallen in the last seven days, how much his draft position has changed and still giving you the tools to make a good decision about you know, how far exactly you have to bump him up. Uh, Well, I'm sure we could talk about this for hours, Ray. It's so interesting. I know we have both got things we got to do, so we can't talk about it for hours. And plus, uh, you know, a listener can only mow his lawn for so often before he has to finally get inside and uh, help with the chores. Uh, Interesting thing on the list, though. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, Ed identified what he called subtle but interesting risers. And at the top of the list, Kirby Yates and Jose Leclerc. <laughs> I have a hunch they may fall into the sudden fallers uh, category yeah, pretty they, soon. They may no longer be in that category on the update I've got in my inbox here. All right, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. A really interesting week. And uh, as I said, we'll have you and Todd on for a round table just before the season starts. And I'm really looking forward to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait for that. We'll talk then. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's our Baseball HQ commentaries, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Matt Dodge looks at speed and speed traps in the American League Central. In Market Pulse, analyst Matt Cederholm has his 2021 All-Avoid team, players the market is overvaluing by Baseball HQ's projections. And in Facts and Flukes, analyst Mike Werner looks at performance by five American leaguers, including Jesus Lazardo, Clint Frazier, and Dylan Cease. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's that player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis all season long in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research like Ed DeCaria's study 
about ADPs, which I talked about with Ray just a little earlier. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have depth charts with playing time estimates by position. And when the season gets started on Thursday, you'll want to be looking at the daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. And hey, before we roll ahead, I wanted to let you know about our next show. It's a big one on Tuesday, our annual preseason roundtable edition with Ray Murphy, Todd Zola, and I looking ahead to the coming season. The award winners, the boons and banes, and a whole lot more. That's coming up Tuesday on Baseball HQ Radio. Don't miss it. Time now for our regular commentaries. The Frequent Flyer is coming up. And leading off, it's our Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Kansas City shortstop Bobby Witt Jr. is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Unlike his father, MLB veteran Bobby Witt Sr., who won 142 games over a 16-year career, the Kansas City Royals' Bobby Witt Jr. is a 5 tool position player who has the potential to emerge as the top prospect in baseball by 2022. The Kansas City Royals made Witt the second overall pick in the 2019 draft and inked him to a franchise record $7.8 million bonus to lure him away from the University of Oklahoma. At the plate, Witt has plus bat speed, excellent barrel control, and plus raw power. Since being drafted, Witt has gotten stronger and focused on making more consistent hard contact. In his pro debut, Witt hit a modest 262 with a 317 on base percentage and a 354 slugging percentage with two doubles, five triples, one home run, and nine stolen bases, and 164 at-bats in rookie ball in 2019. Witt has plus range, soft hands, and a cannon for an arm, and some evaluators see him as a potentially elite defender who should have no trouble sticking at short where he has 20-20 or even 30-30 potential at his peak. Witt didn't see any game action in 2020, but he did spend the summer at the Royals' alternate training site, where he impressed the Royals' management with his work ethic and surprising power from his 6'1", 200-pound frame. Witt has impressed in his first trip to the Cactus League, slashing 289 with a 325 on base percentage and a 526 slugging percentage with three home runs and 38 at-bats. With Adalberto Mondesi firmly in place at short, the rebuilding Royals have shifted Witt around this spring, giving him limited looks in the outfield though he will resume playing short full-time once the minor league season gets underway. Long-term, few prospects offer the all-around skills of Bobby Witt Jr., and he could be in the majors as soon as late 2022. If Witt continues to make progress and everything clicks, he has the potential to be a middle-of-the-order hitter for years to come. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, we have our first edition of The Eyes Have It, where our scouts go out and get their peepers on real prospects. This week, scout Chris Blessing looks at Dodger second base prospect Michael Bush and Detroit outfield prospect Akil Badu, a Rule 5 prospect who looks like he's going to make the team, making my reserve round pick of him look pretty good in Tout American League, one of the few good things about my draft. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your draft and will have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth the spot on your roster. Here with a look at Oakland right-handed starter Dalton Jeffries is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. For many starting pitchers, spring training is about building arm strength. But perhaps for 25-year-old Oakland A's right-handed starter Dalton Jeffries, spring training is about building confidence. A former first-round pick was dealt with injuries as a pro, but impressed at double-A. Dalton Jeffries could be turned loose soon, according to Baseball HQ's 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst. A bold prediction indeed that appears to fit the current Oakland A's narrative. Even so, after striking out seven of the 14 batters, or half the batters he faced through four scoreless innings on March 23rd, Dalton Jeffries was quoted in the Mercury News after the game as saying, Getting into the big leagues is hard, but staying is harder. Very true. 
In line for possibly claiming the fifth spot at Oakland's rotation by opening day, the length of Dalton Jeffrey's stay could be strongly influenced by Mike Fire's injury and A.J. Puck's velocity. In other words, Dalton Jeffries might be right by recognizing getting into the big leagues is hard, but staying is harder. That's why Dalton Jeffries, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. Best known for a tumbling changeup with elite shape and advanced fastball command, according to the 2021 minor league baseball analyst, Dalton Jeffries appears prime for success, as evidenced by his career 317 ERA in the minors. However, perhaps a better measure of success, and there is no more fundamental pitching skill than this, as we believe at BaseballHQ.com, Dalton Jeffries struck out 93 batters in 79 innings through two levels of the minors in 2019, while walking only nine batters, nine walks. That translates to a command ratio of 10.3 strikeouts to walks in 79 innings. Wow. To put that in perspective, we recommend targeting pitchers with a command ratio of 2.5 strikeouts to walks. So command ratio of 10.3 strikeouts to walks, even in the minors, is exceptional. In fact, our own Stephen Nickrand is March 20th Starters 2021 Endgamers column on BaseballHQ.com identified Dalton Jeffries as the ultimate endgame speculation in 2021 drafts. Additionally, Steve Nickrand also adeptly pointed out that the endgame is where you can earn the most profit from your starting rotation. So, if 25-year-old right-handed Oakland A starter Dalton Jeffries is the ultimate endgame speculation, possibly in 2021, as Steve Nickrand adeptly pointed out, then Dalton Jeffries might also earn your team the ultimate endgame profit as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyers commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, leave baseball hq radio a good review and a rating helps us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going thanks again for listening we'll be back again on tuesday with that big preseason baseball hq radio roundtable featuring ray murphy and todd zola ray murphy todd zola and i coming up next tuesday with our roundtable on the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners it is baseball hq radio talk to you tuesday and so long Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.